HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. It's a beautiful spring day here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And uh, last week we had the James Beard Awards here in New York, and uh, actually it was in Chicago. But uh, we had many um, folks from the from the culinary world uh, receive honors, also in food writing. That took place last week. Um, I am so honored because I have a guest on who is also a James Beard Award winner. And she is just a pioneering legend in food writing as we know it. Um, she has written 11 books. I, I may be short on that count. Um, she has lectured widely on food and food history. Um, she is the author of a memoir called My Kitchen Wars, amongst many other books that I have a little pile of here. Um, but uh, My Kitchen Wars was recently uh, released as an ebook, so I hope uh, everyone checks it out. It was written in 1999, but it's so, it, I, I just really enjoyed it. So I'm so thrilled to have on air the unforgettable Betty Fussell. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Happy Sunday to you. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. It's a great honor. It's a great pleasure. Great. So um, your book, My Kitchen Wars, it's a memoir, um, it was adapted into a one-woman play on Broadway, and uh, of course it's in print. How do you feel about now it's uh, being in an e-book? I'm delighted it's in an e-book. Yeah. Um, and I wish it were running as a little one-woman play in other places. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, it came out just before, really, most books were automatically e-booked. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of changes in media these days. Um, but uh, I'm, so, I'm so thrilled because um, it's really an important book, and I hope everyone who's interested in food and food writing especially um, checks it out. Uh, it's a, a genre of a food memoir that I, I really appreciate, at least. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about how you came across 
you know, food writing in general, if we could go back a little bit, because I know you have a PhD in English literature, um, and you've taught Shakespeare as one of your specialties in, in uh, you know, teaching in colleges. So uh, how did uh, the food history and uh, food, food memoir writing Well, like many you? women of my generation, remember, I was born in 1927, mm-hmm. so I'm the age of most of mm-hmm. your grandmothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our generation, um, we're, we're not concerned with food as such. We came out of the Depression and into the war, mm. so our childhood was austerity, more or less. And unless we had, unless we were rich and had a cook or had a mama who was Italian and was a cook, that kind of thing. <laughs> that wasn't your background. <laughs> not no. in my background. So I came in the back door um, really when, as a graduate student, was the first time I was really cooking, and that was for economic sake, because you're too poor to eat out. Mm. Even Chinese food is, we're too poor for that. So uh, you, you do learn to cook. Mm-hmm. And then I discovered it was fun, and that was just before Julia Child, and then we discovered, oh, whole new world there, and that's when it all began for, for my particular generation. It began in the 60s. Right. Wow. <clears throat> I don't think I've had a guest on who said, and that was before Julia Child, so... It's it really amazing. Before Julia Child, <laughs> but not before she was born, but before right, right. she had she, made it big, or before she had made it big for Americans to translate French food into American terms. Yeah, and that was a big moment um, with the French Chef TV show. Um, so, you've written, um, you know, you you do write that cooking did serve a place in the household, whether even if it wasn't, you know, for pleasure um, in the way that maybe you know, more sophisticated or, or like other, other maybe Italian grandmas might have, might have seen cooking, but um, it was sort of like a badge of honor for women in their place, in their families, in their communities. Um, and it, it, you know, hosting the great dinner party was well, a that, war. Well, that all changed. That depends, A, what class you were in. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> If you're in the and if you're poor in the depression, none of that applies. Okay. We're just we're first we talk food, food which everybody has to eat every day. Right. But you're kind of, you're talking about entertaining, which is a whole different subject entirely. It presumes first that you have some food and been able to buy it. Definitely. There is also the fact that people like my grandparents, who were farmers in the Midwest and then moved to California, which is also typical, that they were so grateful when cans came in. You know, this is huge. This allowed them, this freed up some of their time so that they didn't have to bake their own bread. They didn't have to grow their own tomatoes and peaches, et cetera, and wheat. You know? Well, wheat's a whole different problem. You didn't have to grow the wheat for the bread. Okay. And so you know, this is that great, great shift from um, agriculture of a rural kind to agriculture of a major industrial kind. Mm-hmm. And then the backlash against that <clears throat> was saying, wait a minute, canned peaches are no good. Mm-hmm. You know? It is funny, but you can totally see how how women and you know people in general were so excited about canned food when it came out. Um, uh, you write a, a nice little quote in My Kitchen Wars that um, you know in preparing food, uh, women had to pretend there'd been no labor, no expense, no fatigue, no sweat. The aim was to look like a hot tomato while remaining cucumber cool. Uh, and that's all post-war. Mm-hmm. 
Pre-war is a whole different picture. Right. Post-war, we adapted all that machinery we had geared up for wartime use. We adapted it to the kitchen and sold it around the world. We sold it first to American housewives. And the images of the housewife, oh, that could be a classy thing in your kitchen without exactly. a cook. There were, there were cooks, you know, Julia Child's family. Among the wealthy, everybody had a cook even in the United States, until the war. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is huge. As Julia says, you know, this is for the, this, the, the, the servantless American woman cook, which is unusual Right. With, by, by, in that time, in the 40s and 50s. <clears throat> okay, now, uh, you know, everybody's out working, and we have another group of people being nannies and taking care of the kids. <laughs> right. But there's a status to right. mama and daddy coming home and preparing a little pate or pretending to, or is. getting it takeout. Now, yeah. what they can do in takeout was unavailable 30, 40 years ago. God knows, you know. So this this keeps evolving yes. as people's attitude toward food evolves, changes. That doesn't mean it gets better. It just changes hugely. And, and I love that you can see that through, you know, reading this book um, set, um, My Kitchen Wars, um, you know, set during that time period when, um, you know, post-war, um, you know, cooking was, was becoming... A, a, an everyday household uh, kind of entertainment uh, was more common. Um, you see that change. And, um, well, I guess you already kind of explained how things have changed over the years a bit. But They I, changed a lot. Yeah. And they keep changing. <laughs> but food is, at the, is one of the major things at the center of it, which we tend to, you know, we, we concentrate on the technological media changes, mm-hmm. which is there, obviously, and going to space. But in fact, our attitudes toward food, which is at the other end of the spectrum, because we can't do anything else without food. And tell me a little bit about why you called it, a, why you likened cooking or the kitchen to war um, in My Kitchen Wars. And you, and you called the batterie de cuisine, you know, of the, of the kitchen. Um. Because the kitchen is a battle place. You are mm-hmm. fighting uh, with ingredients in order to transform them into, into something you can eat. But this is the this is the ancient war of one creature killing off another creature, or you know, foraging for plants which you uproot, and hunting animals which you kill. So we live on other creatures, mm-hmm. whether it's vegetable or animal. <laughs> no. mm-hmm. So something dies to, that we may live. Absolutely, and knives are our weapons and so forth. Uh, and so at the root of that is a, a battle for life. Absolutely. And, and battle for, for the best life you can have or have for others, provide for others, but others like you. Not, you're not providing for the little uh, mm-hmm. raccoons and goofers. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Um, but I love reading this book and, and, and how, it, you know, cooking really captures your imagination in more ways than, than perhaps one would, it, one would uh, at first expect. Um, you know, you write that food has infiltrated my heart, seduced my brain, and ravished my senses. And later on in the book, um, it's sort of cooking and the enthusiasm sort of drives a wedge between your puritanical background. Um, was that because food wasn't seen so much as, as more than mere sustenance or practical? Food is fuel. Food is mm-hmm. fuel, as it still is to a lot of people. 
as it still is treated in science, actually, because it's treated as a chemical. Mm-hmm. Or it's reduced to its physical, <clears throat> chemical, or genetic components. And, 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 actually, and food is, involves all of us. It involves our imagination first and our, vi- and our vision. We eat what we see. We taste what we see. That actually shapes our, our taste sensations. And what we not only see, but what we remember, what we, appreh- what we perceive at that moment. Ooh, that does look like my grandmother's cookies. Ooh, I bet they're good. Mm-hmm. They don't come up to expectation. Then we damn that cookie because it isn't what we remembered grandma made. <laughs> right. And there, there's like a little tension throughout this <clears throat> book about, um, you know, doing things the 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 expected way or the established way and, uh, and creativity. So I, I noticed that in, you know, one point you're making salad dressings and you're trying a little, uh, something, uh, different and you're adding peanuts and your husband says, you don't put peanuts in salad yes, dressing. Yes. The rules, people who go right. by the rules and the there are people who don't go to the rules. You do not do that. Yes. I salad. think it like people who want to follow recipes. My son does that. My daughter who wants to improvise, mm-hmm. I do that. <clears throat> so it's something like the two, two kinds of cooks. I think one, one is the perfectionist who works and works and works until he gets perfect and then wants to repeat it. Right. The other is the, oh, God, I did that like that last night. I want to do something else. And I want to make it a slight little variation. I feel that is so true today. And I, there's definitely these two distinct types of personalities when it comes to cooking. Those who follow rules and recipes word for word. And those who... But I think we all make... cook and eat very much the way we are. Mm-hmm. The very much the way who we are. So I think, as I've always said, you know, show me how a man eats and I'll tell you how he makes love. Uh, <laughs> or a woman. Or a woman. Right. You know? Because you, there are those who savor their food and those who are gulp it down in one minute. That's not going to be the best lovemaker. And I, <laughs> I, <laughs> it's so true. I love that theme throughout this book, too. Um, if I may, I'm going to read another passage because your writing is so interesting. But um, you write, you know, peeling layers of an onion, spooning out the marrow of a beef bone, laying bare the skeleton of a salmon were acts very much like the act of sex, ecstatically fusing body and mind. So, you know, cooking and, and food is not just this, uh, it, it is a living, you know, these are living things that you are, that yes, you know, you have killed for sustenance, but it it is very much of two bodies coming together in some way or another. Well, everything is, food is our connection to the outside. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're born, we're this little open mouth, you know, <laughs> and we receive sustenance. We are not self-sustaining. We receive sustenance from the outside. That's how we discover mama, that there is a mama. There's something other than us. And that goes on our whole lives if we let it. Mm-hmm. So if we realize this is how we know things, this is how we know what we, who we are in, what we are in context. The context is other people, other creations, um, the world at large, the, the living world and the dead world. You know, that we receive from the outside in through food, through our sensations. And this is what's so wonderful to me about food. It is not logical. It is not the brain. Cut off the brain. You know, yeah. It is memory, imagination. It is sight, touch, 
God knows, touch, smell above all, and uh, what have I left out? Hearing, even. Taste. You know, you hear that bacon crackle in the morning. Right. Who's not going to come running? Bears come running if you're outdoors in the <laughs> wild. So, yes, it's that fully sensual material that at the same time embodies universes. It's so eye-opening when you look at food through those lens. And I wonder if you had written this book in the 50s or 60s instead of 1999, would it have been received a little differently? I couldn't have gotten it public, (laughs) period. (laughs) It was hard enough to get a food history book. I mean, it's really cultural history, but that was, oh, God, did I have to fight... (laughs) Publishers and editors, where are the recipes? Where are the recipes? You can't have a book about food without recipes. Well, thank God we've gone through that I little know. tiny sound barrier. <laughs> you did it. Thank you Each for one is a battle. Thanks for fighting. Yes, thanks for fighting for that. And I want to talk more about your food history books. Um, but after a quick little commercial interlude, and we'll be right back. Listening to Now by the Spiral Jetty Club. This is Eat Your Words on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast regional forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hi, we're back chatting with Betty Fussell on Eat Your Words. And um, Betty, you're the author of so many books, uh, the histories of, of different foods. Um, I'm holding right now, I Hear America Cooking. Um, you've also written The Story of Corn and Raising Steaks, the latter being a great precursor to last week's guest on Heritage. We had uh, the Carnivores Manifesto. Um, so... I'm flipping through I Hear America Cooking. It's called A Journal of Discovery from Alaska to Florida, The Cooks, the Recipes, and the Unique Flavor of Our National Cuisine. And it is, you know, there's a lot of, like, early kind of, like, historical American cookbooks that are all about the, like, colonial uh, period. But this goes deeper and and farther back in history. Um, you talk about the Indians and conquistadors, um, the trappers and milkers of the Midwest, the seafarers and settlers of the New England coast, um, Cajuns and Creoles, planters and slaves. So I wonder what inspired you to write this book? Was there any book quite like it 
um, was it was there were the books just not extensive enough for you? There weren't books that brought together um, the search for my personal search. What is it to be an American? I'm mm-hmm. an American, and I have always felt deeply that I was because we traveled a lot. I knew I was not British or French or anything yeah. else. <clears throat> I never, you know, I wanted to understand what that was. I'm deeply rooted in popular culture, which I do think is American. And my first book was <clears throat> I, the search for the answer to the question, what is, what, what is American? Um, I, I, I went to the movies, mm-hmm. which seems to me a natural, this is one thing that we, let's say, gave to the world yes. uh, at the turn of the century, and that is very much identified with America. America. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote about a, a silent screen comedian. Uh, the com- Americans' particular sense of comedy, there are whole things that distinguish Americans. And I w- it seems to me, obviously, the food is a part of that, particularly when you wonder where you came from yeah. as Americans, as all Americans have to, because nobody was born here. Mm-hmm. We were all born. Right. <clears throat> nobody anciently was uh, uh, born here except Native Americans, and most of us were very recent. That is, only 400 years old or 300 years old or 200 years old as a culture that has immigrated. So this identifies this kind of nothing. There's no place quite like it. That's what I love. Yeah. I mean, I love cookbooks that really explore the cuisine of a nation and and its culture and history. And this book very much does, much more so than a cookbook, although there are recipes throughout and they're really amazing. Um, The the function of a cookbook is different. The recipes are simply mm how-tos for any cookbook. So that's you. It's a how-to manual. It can be expanded with a lot of personal stuff and head notes and footnotes, and that is wonderful. But the focus has to be on how do you make this particular cake, right? And you have just tons of regional, regional dishes throughout here, um, but also peppered with you know history about how these recipes came to be. Um, I love your little excerpt here about Tabasco sauce. Um, I learned how that was formed and it was it turns out that it's from um you know people who who had just fought in the mexican-american war returning to texas and new orleans with seeds from mexico and um tabasco the word meaning damp earth um it was the name of a river near vera cruz and um a new orleans banker edmund mcgillany uh just decided that he would name his sauce after that and use the seeds. And um, I just thought it was a it was a lovely little story about this sauce that has become so ubiquitous and thought of as, you know. Well, to eat any food or any dish is to eat history mm-hmm. automatically because you're eating a place and a context and <clears throat> the people who uh, put together that particular dish, which also changes. But if you think about what I love is the difference between places. So I traveled around the perimeter of the country where all the ports were, because that's where the people came. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so if you look at the difference between New York and New Orleans, between New Orleans and Portland or Seattle, they're totally different. Why? The geography is different. The people who came were different, and everybody brought with them their their trucks full right. of their food culture. So you get this mingling of cultures here that you never get any other place. 
I, I mean, any other continent that's quite the same as, as this. I, and I love looking at food through that lens, like, okay, why why are why are people here eating pizza? Oh, okay, because we're in New York, um, Atlantic where Ocean. Where did pizza come from? Exactly. Of course, Naples, but where did it go? <laughs> so it has a particular history. Mm-hmm. And how did it get adapted? How did it get translated? Right. As it did, you know. This is, these are the questions always that I think are the most fun. And, you know, America is a great place to explore that because there's so many diverse, uh, you know, let I be, I mean peoples behind it and and histories, um, but you really go earlier than than most I think American cookbook, cookbooks I've seen at least. Um, but that's because I came. I'm a historian. I came mm-hmm. out of history. That's my training. <clears throat> I didn't come from the other end. I didn't come from professional kitchens. I didn't come from a fascination with culinary techniques, of which I'm actually not very good. I'm not a good <laughs> shopper. <laughs> I, you know, sometimes I struggle with telling people what I do, and I'm like, I'm a food writer. Um, it's, yeah, what's that? It's exactly, yeah. what is that? I can't imagine what it was like for you. How did you, you know, how did you form an idea about this genre, and like, how did you kind of tell folks about it? Um, something well, like food history. When I started using that term, uh, people had zero idea. Right. What's that? Because you you couldn't put that together in this country. You could in other countries. Mm. Britain has a great tradition of food writing historically. So does France. So does Italy, et cetera. Okay. But we're mm. not a historical country. America mm. is not a historical country. Our when we look at time, we look at the future. We look at oh, that's gonna you know we're gonna get there tomorrow, and we're gonna go west tomorrow. It's mm-hmm. gonna be better then. This is not a European sense at all, or a Chinese or an Asian sense. This is, again, a new continent, or new old people invading, invading, coming to new continent and changing their lives. They Mm -hmm. come to make new, and that's Mm -hmm. one of the excitements. Uh, But it's also, you never get rid of what you came from. Right. And is that why you decided to write um, the book called The Story of Corn? Yeah, because I'd gone around to the the beginnings of the immigrant cultures and how they brought immigrant foods and how they got translated and realized I had left out, which is actually my own native heritage, which is Midwestern. Mm. And I, I just I'd completely forgotten the middle of the country, <laughs> partly because it's, it has a very different history and it's founded much later. Right. It's the last to be settled. So it's the most recent Right. It's not even a frontier. It's the most recent in that sense frontier. But it's you know some 1840s on as opposed to um, the 15th and 16th centuries on the coast. <clears throat> and it's also much more uniform because not as many different ethnicities uh, migrated to the Midwest. Right. And as you're and saying... And that makes a big difference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As you're saying, you know, people came through the coast. So that would be... Yep. The second generations of people, you know, going to the middle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right. You have to go. You have to land in a port mm-hmm. in order to climb into your covered wagon and go east or west. Mm-hmm. So I would love to ask you, buddy. What do you think? Which region of America has, in your opinion, the best cuisine or the most interesting and the, your favorite, perhaps? And, and you know, you can't do that. There's no <laughs> way to do it because it's what is going to be most interesting to me is going to be probably uh, the deepest mix of cultures. Okay. And so, and 
and other things that combine with that, like a an early restaurant culture, and that just means public eating places. That doesn't mean fancy stuff. Uh-huh. But I, I, you know, I go straight to New Orleans for one of the for kind of a the original food city. Mm-hmm. It's it, uh, oh, and also because it grows things much more easily than uh, than let's say any the East Coast, right. the East Coast big cities, right. or the Northeast. My other. Uh, Real interest is, in course, now in, and has always been in California. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So San Francisco has always been a, an interesting food city because it has had huge mixes of cultures that have remained in a place that uh, enriches itself, you know, the way New Orleans does. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned New Orleans because there's so many interesting uh, recipes in um, in I Hear America Cooking um, that uh, I, I, it's interesting because, you know, Tabasco sauce, some of these things are, are just have become so ingrained with American cuisine and others. I, I'm not sure if I've ever heard of like salad. Salmagundi salad or Charleston? Salmagundi is just a fancy word for a particular kind of stew, uh-huh. but a historic word. But it, things like, well, you know, good. crab boy, crawfish, crab, crawdaddies, <laughs> crawfish. Well, you can't, uh, they're best fresh. So, you know, hang yeah. on to the fact that it's local. You yeah. know, you don't want to, I don't want to eat crawfish in Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much, there's so much color and flavor in these recipes, though, like the like Charleston she crab soup, um, which you, you kind of trace back to the 30s um, when people could remember people hearing on the streets, uh, she crab. What yeah. was that all about? <laughs> this Charleston is about, this is about This is our form of regional, and we don't have a lot of regional that stays put because we are so mobile. Mm-hmm. Things change yeah. enormously. You can't compare Atlanta, which, you know, for example, another place in the south, to a place like New Orleans because it has, has changed radically. New Orleans is not in the same way. Mm. Uh, and, it, and partly original. because it was had so many distinct and diverse rich cultures coming together at the same time that right. it's retained its seafoods and its rice fields French. and its <laughs> swamp lands and its Cajun and its Creole. You know, that's unusual mm-hmm. with us. It's very, much more common in Europe. Okay, well, let's let's travel up a little bit on the East Coast to New England. Um, you write about a dish called lobscous. Uh, <laughs> it's a British dish um you know with lobster or in you know british dialect it was pronounced loblolly or i don't, I don't know yeah, they, they actually that gets into the vast subject of restaurant names mm. you know, which are always translations if it's another even in our own country I mean, you know the translations from one dialect or vernacular to another Mm, uh, with I lots see. of comedies in between, and some stick and some don't. You mm-hmm. know? But it's it's uh, and you can you can find that the recipes are often very similar to something else you might call yeah. a lobster chowder. Right, you right. Know? But it's it's <laughs> different if you have that particular name of yes. lobster, and you have you bring in a moment of history, or you can investigate that history if you don't know it. And it is a moment in history, and um, and now it's kind of preserved here for for those to remember and kind of look back on. Um, and I love that. And that's what recipes are for, anyway. It's just you know, notations. Otherwise, you'd have it store it all in your head. Right. <laughs> and you know, some of these lovable recipes they don't get old. You know, we keep reinventing them. 
Um, we reinvent everything. We don't invent anything new in the mm-hmm. food world. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the pleasure of it. We're fooling ourselves thinking that those innovative chefs who just won James Beard Awards, nah. They, no, it's also, yeah. <laughs> you are creating that every time you do a dish. You're creating yeah. it new. Right. You're making right. it new in your kitchen mm-hmm. to your taste. Mm-hmm. With that and that particular day, if your particular kind of mood, you know, <laughs> That it's all very particular, and you will never have exactly that same dish again. Right, right. Well, um, I I could talk forever with you, Betty. I wish I could, but um, it looks like that's about all the time we have for today. Um, thank you for letting th- me indulge myself. Thank you so much for <laughs> indulging yourself, Betty. And I hope everyone checks out the new ebook or the regular book, uh, My Kitchen Wars, and uh, of course, all of your other amazing cookbooks and uh, history books. So, Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Betty. Um, we'll see everyone at Heritage Radio Network next week. Oh, I like the way you do. The theme song for Eat Your Words Whoa, is Lovin' Like This by the, the California Honey Drops. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.